Our scripture coming this morning from the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, a new covenant. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, whom I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like a covenant that I made with the ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke that was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, and will write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, said the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. This, uh, this past week, uh, as I said uh, earlier, uh, Bishop Lowry and I have been back and forth in, in preparation for uh, uh, today in uh, you know, this week I've learned a lot of, uh, of history, uh, not only from Bishop Lowry, but uh, from Trudy Paul and, and others. And uh, Bishop uh, w- was here in, uh, was it 1987 that you began here? 1984. That makes more sense to me. Uh, because I, I remember between 90, uh, 84 and 87, the first pastor, Carl Roths, by that time was in Del Rio, because he's, uh, he's the first one I remember giving uh, ad- advice. And you can, you know, having had him as a roommate, uh, you can uh, guess some of his, uh, his advice. But um, 1984, and I guess it's 1987 that we moved here. Okay, ninety-five. I'm all, you know, I'm all over the place with that, with the history. <laughs> so let's uh, let's go back to the simple simple truth is that uh, Bishop Mike Lowry uh, at the time, uh, Reverend Mike Lowry, was the second pastor here at at Asbury. Uh, at that time, they were at Saratoga uh, on Saratoga, and during that period, moved from Saratoga to here. Uh, after this, uh, after this building was uh, built, and so we are literally here because uh, of the man who is about to speak to us, and uh, and just want to uh, uh, say that uh, Bishop Lowry was gracious enough to accept my invitation to speak today. He is uh, the Central Texas Conference uh, Bishop of our Central Texas Conference uh, of the United Methodist Church Bishop, and and I know right now. Y'all uh, are doing a lot of work, and uh, all of you bishops are doing a lot of work, and so it surprised me, and I was, uh, I was thrilled that you said yes. And so I, I invite you to welcome Bishop Lowry as he gives us a, 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 a conversation, uh, a message about a heart that is transformed. Thank you. It's, it, it feels good to be back home, if you will, here at uh, Asbury. For those of you that have uh, been here uh, since the days Jolynn and I were here, 
Uh, it's a delight to see you. I, I recognize eyes and heads, but sometimes I need the mask down to know to put the name with it. And then for those of you who've come since then, which I'm sure there are many, I just want to uh, express my uh, appreciation for the fact that you're here and that we have an opportunity to worship together. Ask you uh, God's good blessing. I also want to take a moment, by the way, uh, um, not casually, but to significantly uh, offer my appreciation to your pastors, to Tom and to Trudy, and for the graciousness of their welcome. So I want to make sure you hear that as a part of my gratitude. Let's bow for a word of prayer, shall we? Let the Lord speak to us. Gracious God, as we come before you this day and worship, as we sing and we pray, we ask that you might speak to our hearts and minds, Lord, as only you can this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be pleasing and acceptable. In your sight, we pray. Amen. So I rise this morning, this third Sunday in Lent, with a simple question to ask of us all. And that is, what's at the core of your being? What's at the essence of of who and what you are, of, of your makeup, your character, your values, your, your essence of living. Another way to put this might be to simply raise the question as the prophet Jeremiah raises it. And that is, what's written on your heart? For many in our, our day and time, dare we say for many of us, uh, this is the equivalent of asking, what does success look like? in life, not just in one's profession. And it's here we come as a people on the edge of emerging from a worldwide pandemic. Think about it now. We've been through a, a, a year when the normal things that were a, a part of the fabric of who we were being and our regular activity have been denied us. Often we've been quarantined or, or we've been pressed in and we've limited our world and surroundings and now we're, we're just starting the first emergings and you can argue legitimately that we're actually over-eager to start them. And as we emerge, it poses the question before us all and that question is this simple yet profound one. As we step back into life post-pandemic, what's written on your heart? What's the essence of your being? Who and what are you not just about, but who and what are you at the core? This is where, in fact, the gospel passage for this morning meets us. If you flip open the gospel of St. John and look there in the 12th chapter, there's a passage designated to be read in the church's lectionary for this Sunday in Lent, this week before Palm Sunday, that is an incident that takes place between Jesus and some Greek followers. It's in the 12th chapter, the 20th verse of John's gospel. It reads like this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee. Now, let me hit the pause button here a little bit. It's significant that they came to Philip because if they were Greeks, Philip is probably a Greek name. 
And the best of our scholarship would tell us that he himself was a Greek. So they sought out somebody they thought they had an affinity with. They, they sought out somebody that was a part of their own, their own uh, tribal makeup and character. Somebody maybe from their own country. And the Bible says that they came to Philip and said to him, Sir, we wish... To see Jesus. The story continues. Philip went and told Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains just a grain. But if it dies. It bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. But those who and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, said Jesus, the Father honors. Now this word from the Lord that comes to us to be read this Sunday is a word that fuses with the prophet Jeremiah's statement about what is written on the heart. If you read Jeremiah with some care, you realize that it's all future tense. It's, it's out there. Jeremiah is saying, God will, hasn't yet, but will write it on your heart. It's going to happen. It's going to come. And, and in fact, the Greeks that came to him were a, were a people that were known for philosophically being searchers. Now, don't get confused by the word philosophy. This is... Uh, this is not a reference to how well you remember Plato from college, which in my case is not much, you know. It's a reference to the fact that philosophy stood for what we would say religion or being spiritual in our day. So you've heard the term in, in America today, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. We just translate that as these Greeks in philosophy, where they're kind of seekers, and they're, they're looking, and, and they're inquisitive. And that was, that was the very essence and nature, often, of those who were Greek seekers at a religious festival and a part of celebrating. So when that passage comes, it comes to us very characteristically as an element of who and what they are. Thus it is as seekers of old. Those traveling the elusive highway of truth that God's gospel meets us today in the words and answer of Jesus. They came to Philip. As I've said already, probably someone from their own country. And with a simple request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now I want you to pause and jump those 2,000 or so years and step into it today as we come out of a pandemic. As we begin to wrestle again with what's at the, the core of who we are. 
You see, I, I submit that every single one of us here, to some degree or another, could be with these Greek followers who went to Philip. We too wish to see Jesus. I mean, think about it. Think about it. We live in a time of pandemic seared by a partisan political divide, scalded by economic struggle and wrestling with the essence of our makeup uh, around ethical issues such as race and immigration. And we too are seeking for the truth. We're seeking to meet Jesus in our lives today. Today's quest for the truth is anchored right in a text like this. It's a quest for purpose. It's a quest for success. It has many different outward forms, but its inward content has changed little. We're after a sense of, of what we might call life transformation in purpose, in truth, in presence, and in what we tend to call success. And today in our age, the pro proliferation of philosophies and religions that are a mark of America today, as one scholar has put it, we live in an age of religious anarchy, give testimony to our, to our commonness with these Greek searchers. We too wish to see Jesus. That's part of what brings us here, isn't it? Now, take this passage. And put it with a prophet. And let him speak to you. Because in our search for Jesus, what we know is somehow we need a penetration from God into the very core of our being to be deliberately, intentionally, biblically focused. The words from the prophet Jeremiah in the future tense, God will write it on your heart. When I think of that, I find myself thinking of a story that I ran across, I don't know, five, six years ago. It was a story of, of a nurse in a neonatal unit watching pre, uh, prematurely born infants who were uh, medically in intensive care. And as she watched the two or three she had responsibility for that night and in the larger ward, one of them in particular sort of arrested her attention. That little child uh, would, would flicker in, in the kind of color of his skin from a, a healthy pink kind of color for a newborn baby to occasionally just get a darker, almost a, a blue-black color that, that scared the nurse. She thought, in fact, that nurse thought she had seen that happen before and that it had been a, a baby that had a heart problem that was called uh, pneumopericardium which if I understand it medically correct, is, is a condition where air in the air sac presses against the lungs and, and the baby, for that matter, I guess if adult had it, you couldn't either, but the baby can't breathe. The heart, the heart doesn't have the, the, the physical ability to expand like it should when it, when it normally pumps blood. And as she watched during that shift, suddenly the monitors started going off just in their loud attention screaming for this particular baby. 
And you know what happens. It happens in all hospitals and in the intensive care units, uh, especially in a neonatal intensive care unit. Technicians and doctors and nurses and other personnel uh, flooded in to help in this one condition. And they immediately turn their attention to a problem that is common with newborns. And that problem is that the lungs can collapse and so they diagnosed it as a problem of the lungs. But this one nurse kept saying, no, it's, it's the heart. It's the heart. It's not the lungs. And, and when, they, when she said that, the, the staff would just point to the monitor. Maybe you've been in a hospital room or a doctor's room or the monitor's kind of up to the right of the bed and you can see the beat of the heart and, and the tracking of that on the screen in front of you and they'd point to that and say, no, it's, it, it's got to be the lungs because the heart's beating just fine. They, they'd point to that and finally, in, in exasperation, she screamed for quiet. Almost stunned, they stopped for a minute. Leaned forward, put the stethoscope right on the chest of that little baby and listened carefully. And the heart was not beating, despite what the monitor said. At that point, she turned to one of the x-ray technicians who was watching things, and he finally was able to confirm what she was reporting. Stunned, the staff was there as the doctor, the neosurgeon, uh, uh, burst into the room and she grabbed, she grabbed a syringe, slapped it in his hands and said, it's pneumopericardium, stick the heart. And with that, um, uh, again, my... My apologies for medical personnel if I get this a bit wrong. With that, the, the surgeon very carefully and extremely, with, and with just an extremely high level of skill, used the syringe to pierce the air sac around the heart and, and, and relieve the air out uh, uh, so, that, so that the child's heart could beat again, could expand. And the life, the life of that little baby was saved. In the report I read, they said that it was only later, afterwards, that they were able to figure out what had actually happened. It seems the, the monitors that tracked a heartbeat were, were, were set up in such a way, and this, is, this was common, I mean, they've since worked on improving it, but they were set up in such a way that, that what they measured was electric, electrical activity. They measured the synapses in the brain firing, telling the heart to beat. And that was going just fine. They could see it on the monitor. But the heart wasn't beating because it physically could not beat. Now friends, I offer that story by way of saying that in the cross, what Christ has done for you and me, and indeed for this entire bruised and battered world, is He has stuck our heart. This is the essence of the gospel and the claim of Christ on the core of our being. It's the answer Jesus gives those Greek seekers that he is the one who etches as if on glass or chisels as if on stone in our hearts, yours and mine and ours collectively, 
the law, the word, the way of God for our lives. Now follow what takes place here. Jesus says the Son of Man has not yet been glorified. Now I, 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 don't, want you to get, I don't want you to get lost here in, in what that means. Son of Man is a is a biblical term that means the ultimate human being, the, the, the conquering hero who, who is themselves divine. And the, the common English translation of the Bible, which I often use, translates it simply the human one, which is by way of saying this is the perfect human being. This is, this is, this is what we're all created by God ultimately to be. That, that if the way of God is written in love on our hearts, if it's, if it's etched in our being, chiseled in our essence, why, if that's the case, then what we are to be is to be like Him. Those who follow me, you remember the phrase at the end of the passage? The Father will honor. Who is the ideal human being? Why, it's the one who is at once both human and divine, and that is Jesus Christ. And so when he, when he gives this phrase, he's giving an answer that the Greek seekers and all those listening would at least at the first expect. And, and the issue is that Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps talking. And it, it, you've heard the phrase, boy, you ought to stop talking when you're ahead. No, not for Jesus. Now stay with me here in this passage. Because... This is what scholars often call one of the, one of the key, pivotal passages in St. John's Gospel. Uh, because it indicates where the walk of Christ leads and where we are headed on this and any Lent, which is to the cross, and yes, beyond... But Jesus said that the, son of, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified uh, means raised up in glory. And very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. Now the first sentence of this, they would have nodded in agreement. And when he starts getting into unless it dies, they'd start scratching their head. Wait, What's he talking about? What does he mean? And, and, then the, and then the passage continues with these words. Jesus answered them, and, and he said, uh, unless it dies, but if it dies, it, quote, bears much fruit, verse 24. And then he says, those who love their life would lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, in verse 25. By the time he's at the end of this passage, whoever serves me, whoever ser serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. By the time he's at the end of this passage, his listeners are absolutely confounded. You see, they would have taken the first part and said this is to be expected, but all this, this talk about dying and serving others, that, that just makes no sense in this world. I mean, think about it. How does the world consider life to be at its best, at its essence? Well, we uh, tend to talk about it as your own power, your own glory, getting what you want, right? And what's Jesus talking about? He's saying, no, you've got to die. You've got to lay down what you want and submit to God's preferences 
And friends, that's hard for every single one of us every hour of every day. For it means we, we live in a submission that is foreign not just to the American ethos and culture, but strange the world over. See, we, we Christians are, and let's get honest, we're kind of nutty people. Really? I mean, come on, deal with it. What's the central symbol of this place? Yeah, it's right there. I was here when it got hung, you know. But I noticed you've taken it down and rehung it because at that time we only had one screen, but that has nothing to do with this. So this is, this is the central symbol because this is what has pierced our heart. It's a way of life, it's a way with God, it's, it's a way to the essence of who we are that God wants to write on our heart that is the law of life and love that comes with at least three foundational, basic, simple uh, examples and lessons for us. And the first of those is simply this profound and very simple lesson and that lesson is that we as a people of faith live in an essence in a way of being that has to do with God's love at the core of our being that involves a capitulation of our will to God's will I'm going to write it on your heart says God and no one will have to say well do you know the Lord because we will all know the Lord. We'll all live in that kind of relationship where God's will, God's way for our life is paramount over our own preferences, over our own desires, over our own aspirations. So first and foremost, the 24th verse is about, is about the fact that only in spending our lives for others will we gain life. Catch again the image. It's a, it's agrarian in its very essence. Verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, take out a grain of wheat and write in your name. Write in the name of our city, our state, our country, and yes, friends, the entire world. What's to be etched, written on the heart, chiseled in the essence of our being? It is this sense, this sense in the teaching of Jesus at that pivotal 12th chapter of John's Gospel, this sense that if we want to truly gain life. It's not by ambition or station or rank. It's about spending our lives for others. And then look how he takes it one more step into the radically different when in verse 25 he says, those who love their life lose it and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now don't, don't, don't get messed up here. He's talking about not hating life as in hating living, but hating life is defined by your own success, ambition, and triumphs. 
Put differently, what he's saying is that unless we die to personal desires and ambitions, we will not have life at its best. Transformed living comes in loving. You know that. Look again at the statement. And when we die to personal desires and ambitions, why then we are transformed to life lived by, with, and for God. It's what's etched on the heart. The Lord's way is written in us. It's when we finally surrender our own aspirations that God gives to us even greater triumph. So, I feel like I'm going to show my age. Some of you remember who Phyllis Diller was, you know? She's a comedian. She used to say, could we just talk? Well, I just want to talk for a minute. If you think about the greatest living in your own life, when does it usually happen? It usually happens when we surrender our own need to be in control our own need to have power usually happens when we surrender that to God. Are any of you in here parents or grandparents? Can I see a show of hands? No, this applies to a fair number of you, right? <laughs> me, me, me too, by the way. I'll show you pictures of four of the greatest grandkids that have ever lived at the close of the service. <laughs> we'll line up. Well, you know instinctively that as a parent or as a grandparent, often as a brother or sister, you know that some of the very greatest living in your life happens when you poured your life out for a kid. First year we moved here to Asbury to be a pastor, we took a vacation up in New Mexico, up near Red River, New Mexico, went fishing in a trout stream. I took my then five-year-old son with me fishing. I had dreams of catching the greatest trout in the world. I threw my line in the water and immediately pulled one up. Ha, ha, ha. And Nathan cast his line and caught the tree on the other side. And then later it was a rock over here. And that was the way the whole time went. I spent most of my time clamoring around on the hook and stuff. Three, three decades later, I think that was some of the greatest living I've done in my life. I don't get stuck in my story you put your story in that. When does great living happen for us as a nation? Well, I, I, I don't even want to go whether you're a Republican or Democrat or belong to some party the rest of us have never heard of. Is it not when we are pouring ourselves out in sacrifice to God's will and God's way above and beyond our own glory. And then just, I'm kind of bootleg historian. Think about the history of the world. Is that not when greatness takes place? Counterintuitive is the Christian gospel. 
We hold up a cross at the center of our worship and we think because we have been stuck with the cross, we have had an, effort, an, effort, an opportunity and an aspiration to live a life that is given by God and not by us. And then in the 26th verse, if you follow 24, 25, 26, you get the third lesson here, which is greatness comes through service. Verse 26, do you remember how the words go? He says, whoever serves me must follow me. And remember how he winds it up. Must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be. That means you and me also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Friends, again, we know this instinctively, and yet it is so very, very easy to forget. As you approach the cross, as you come to Palm Sunday next week and its glory and triumph, I invite you to remember that with the cross, God sticks us in the heart and raises us to greater living than we can ever otherwise imagine. Let the words of Jesus in this week soak in to the very essence of who and what you are. Let them be written on the heart in Jeremiah's word. Whoever serves me, the Father, that is God, will honor. May it be so. For you, and for me, and for us together. Amen.